to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Have you ever considered getting help for a mental health or substance abuse issue, but you weren't sure where to find it? Have you ever thought about recommending a loved one get help, but didn't know what to suggest? Have you ever doubted whether professional help actually works? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. Today, I talked to Brian Abrams. You might remember Brian from the R&B group, Color Me Bad, who rose to the top of the charts in the 90s with songs like I want to sex you up and all for love. The group was really successful, but as they rose to fame and sold millions of records, Brian was dealing with some serious private battles, including depression and eating disorder and drinking too much. He wanted to get help many times, but he struggled to find the help he really needed. So on today's show, he talks about how to find help that actually works. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Brian's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Brian Abrams. He's mentally strong, and this is his story. Brian Abrams, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So I am almost positive that one of the very first cassette tapes I owned back in the day was Color Me Bad. In fact, I don't know if it was mine or if it was my sister's and I just stole it from her, but... uh, I have listened to your voice that, for many, many years. <laughs> that's awesome. The fact that you said cassette tape lets me know that you and I are maybe in the same vicinity uh, time-wise because a lot of these younger kids, they don't know what a cassette tape is. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. So what a lot of people, though, might not know is that while you were so successful publicly, you were privately dealing with some pr- problems that I'm guessing most of your fans had no idea, at least for a while, that you were struggling with. No idea, yeah. Yeah. And can you share just a little bit about what some of those private struggles you were going through were? Private struggles. We'll start with, um, I was a very overweight child. I was thin until I was about eight, nine years old. And then I started putting on weight. And I'm thinking it was because of home life and just kind of stress and that sort of thing, you know. Um, I was a very big person in high school. And so I lost uh, 140, 150 pounds before the group made it. Um, And so the reason why I'm bringing that up is because while everyone else was seeing this thin guy that looked like he was put together and these other guys, like I grew up with those boys, they were my brothers, but people didn't know that in my mind, I was still a 400 pound kid. You know what I'm saying? So it was a lot of uh, <clears throat> insecurity on stage, being scared, forgetting lyrics, that sort of thing. And um, I tried really hard to show confidence and be that person that I thought people wanted me to be. Um, but it was just really hard to keep that up and, and move. And so there was one of the issues. Uh, so um, eating disorders. I was bulimic, um, which a lot of young men don't talk about, you know, being bulimic and having some of those issues. Um, so 
there was a period where I got really, really thin. I don't know if you remember through a little stage shortly after coming out, I got even thinner before I started looking halfway. You know, I started bulking up and getting healthy because I went through some healthy years, but I was literally not keeping food down. Um, I was scared to death and, and cause I'd lost all this weight. So I'm, I'm hiding loose skin and you know, I, they weren't really doing full body lifts back then. So I'm this young kid. I look at me as still being a kid back then. I thought I was grown, but I wasn't. Um, so I had the excess skin. I was dealing with the insecurity of still feeling overweight and having a body issue. Um, I was bulimic. Um, and on top of that, I was dealing with like mental health issues as well. So and I'm not trying to paint it like it was a nightmare because it wasn't all a nightmare. But there were things that I was coping with on a daily basis that nobody knew about. And in today's world, a lot of celebrities, a lot of musicians, performers talk about their mental health struggles. Yeah. But back in the early 90s, nobody was talking about it. Not no. Privately, you know, families were struggling with a lot of issues privately. People didn't really talk much about therapy. It wasn't really an option. But certainly public figures didn't come out and say, gosh, I'm struggling with this or I'm dealing with that. Yeah. And, and so I can imagine then as a man who's so successful that it must have been awful to be dealing with all of these things privately and thinking, gosh, what would happen to me if people found out? Times have changed so much. Back then, it was about mystique, like Prince, Michael, you know, you weren't seen unless you just came out and made yourself available. And people loved that. That's the way things were. That doesn't work these days because um, people are smart enough to know social media, you know, when there's a lot of hype or a person is kind of full of themselves, you know, they want transparency. And so right around the time I got sober was right around the time everyone started coming out in talking about addiction and alcoholism and mental health issues. And I was like, this is good, you know, because it helped me feel like I was not alone. So I started getting more comfortable talking about it. That's why I want to do this today and, you know, make the career changes that I've made because there are other young men and women out there that need to hear these stories so they can be inspired like I was, you know? That's just it. I think the more we're talking about it, the more we're realizing that so many people struggle with this. Yeah. I'm, I'm a therapist and almost everybody comes into my office feeling like, uh, like they're alone in their struggles. What they don't know is I sit in this chair and all day long, people come in and tell me a lot of the exact same feelings that they're going through. But because nobody talks about it outside of the therapy office, people think they're the only ones struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, in the whole you know, social, well, not social media world, but, you know, entertainers, actors, uh, actresses, sport figures, they, they try to keep this persona, this strong kind of, I mean, it, it, they're starting to be a little more transparent now, but I almost, and the, the other artists that I know, because I know um, a lot of musicians uh, that feel like they have to have this certain face when they're in public and they don't want to show weakness you know, and a lot of people consider those things like I did weaknesses. So you wanted to hide them. And so the trick, in my opinion, now is to focus on um, using those things that I used to think were weaknesses as strengths. It's, it's all about perspective. 
Yeah, I agree because so many people think uh, that, uh, say, having depression, having an eating disorder is a weakness. But when you really think about it, it takes way more strength to ask for help than it does to hide it. Not just that, but if you are strong enough to share your story, the people that you can help because they feel alone turns into a whole different kind of ball game. You know, so that's what I, I took a story that I thought I was ashamed of and bad um, and turned it into something that I could use as a tool to reach people. I love that. And what did you find when you started sharing your story? What kind of response did you get? Unbelievable. So many more people keep secrets and try to keep to themselves. So many more people are dealing with mental health on a daily basis, mental health issues, uh, addiction issues, insecurities. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, That's the whole American way is that, you know, whole just everything is perfect and great all the time. And so the more you talk about it, the more you start getting feedback. Like I still, I'm sure I've probably already done it a few times, but I start getting choked up when I talk about certain things. And it's because it's still new to me. Like I'm in my third year of sobriety. So as we talk, I get flashes. Sorry. That's okay. Um, This is pre-recorded. So just so you know, I mean, you can use it. But I guess what it is, is that's another huge thing is I'm, I'm a grown man and I'm a pretty good sized man. So my fear is always talking about these things and falling apart. But I have my daughter sitting nearby. And that's why I did this, you know, because I didn't have the support when I was young. And I didn't have a father. My father was murdered when I was two years old. That's a whole different story. Um, but I didn't grow up with the support. And so whenever I see my daughters, I also see that little boy that I was. Yeah. And I just got to the point where, you know, as an alcoholic, you want to look for everything that doesn't go your way uh, as an excuse to drink or use. And that's a very narcissistic way of living. And so you have to get out of yourself. You have to start like the, the whole trick. And I guess this is, kind of answering the question. I'm all over the place with this stuff, but um, to, gosh, now I lost my train of thinking. Oh, um, my apologies. No problem. Um, I don't even remember where I was at with that. Um, well, tell me this, because you've mentioned several things. You had an eating disorder, you had mental health issues. Did you have depression? Does it other mental health oh, yeah, issues? Yeah, that's one of the, that's the biggest. That was the yeah. biggest. And and then you struggled with uh, alcohol addiction? Alcohol addiction, yeah. I think, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. And so how did you finally get help for it? Because sometimes when people are dealing with multiple issues, they'll sometimes say to me like, well, when life is better, uh, I'll, work, I'll tackle that. Or they want to tackle one thing at a time. But when you have addiction issues and eating disorder and mental health issues, usually you have to tackle them all at once. But it seems so overwhelming that people are like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I'm a mess. Help. It's, it's kind of a shame, but there are so many treatment facilities out there, which is a good thing, but there are so many of them that aren't doing it right. And so when things started turning around for me was when I was at Oceans, um, they said that I had to tackle or I had to, you know, tackle a few of those things at the same time because one can feed the other. And so I went in and, and during the time I was in treatment, I focused on the eating disorders and the, uh, the alcoholism. 
You know what I'm saying? Because I used to drink and not eat for days at a time. Like it was my food when I would go through, you know, depression. And I thought I was masking things, but I was just basically making my depression worse. But, you know, there's certain, certain disabilities or issues that go hand in hand and kind of feed the other. And so they started doing it right. Like I'd been to a few treatment facilities where the first thing they want to do when they see you as a 400 pound man is put you on a diet Mm. and put you in the gym twice a day. There's another facility that I won't mention unless you ask later, but I actually got deeper in after two months into my eating disorder because I was being pressured to lose more weight and more weight. You know, they were trying to get me on Oprah and it's like, you got to lose a hundred pounds while you're in here. And it took me a while and a little growth, but I was like, that was really unbelievable that I had to go through that. You know, I was going to the gym twice a day in the morning at 5 a.m. I was going in the evening and, uh, you know, a, a special diet is fine, but, you know, this, this new place that I went, they, they really listen to you and find out where your, your disorder problems are and they try to tackle those in the right way. You, you can't take a bulimic person or someone who has body issues and throw them in the gym twice a day. A person can kill themselves that way. I, I knew right. people that had dis- eating disorders that would run themselves till their toes bled. You know what I'm saying? And so you, you can't do it that way. I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you, you've got to find that right place. And the big question, I guess, these days is what is that right place? You know, um, and you, it's almost like process of elimination. I've been to several treatment facilities. One thing is I knew I had to want to do it myself, but two, I had to be with the right kind of support. And, you know, there's people out there that are dealing with depression or addiction issues. And there's nothing like here in the state of Oklahoma, you basically have to be suicidal in order to get some kind of help. Like you can't, you know, be struggling and, and maybe you're not at that point, but they, uh, they just want to, you know, give you a drug of some sort and send you home, you know, keep you there for 24 hours, a couple of days. And if you're not suicidal, they send you home. And that's what the state pays for is if you're about to lose your mind or kill yourself or somebody else, then we'll help you. But as far as any of these other things go, if, if you're not that bad, then just go back to your life sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. Our mental health system has been quite broken for a long time. We treat people when you're sick, we, but we, yet we don't have a lot of preventative measures. We don't teach people proactively what to do. We don't do a good job identifying things. Physicians often aren't trained in how to recognize mental health issues. And then if they do, they don't know where to send you or what to do. Obviously, money is a factor. People can't afford treatment. The list goes on and on. How did you come to the conclusion that you needed help? What made you decide, okay, I can't, I can't do this on my own? When I had tried so many times that, you know, and I thought I had it, but I really hadn't taken a, a, a really close look at myself. Was I really ready to stop? But when things started happening, like um, the situation with me and Mark, the guy that I was, you know, performing with, um, I pushed him on stage. And, um, it was a horrible thing to do. Um, and now I'm going to have to ask you to ask me the question again. I'm so sorry. 
What what made you decide to 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 finally get help? What made me want the help was that being a public thing. It ended up on TMZ the same day um, or the the very next morning, and wondering about my daughters and what they were going to think, the kind of backlash they were going to have to deal with at school because you know some of the students or their parents might know who I am, and this was all over the news and in the papers. And I'm just like, this I can't do this to my kids anymore. You know, and they always say you got to love yourself enough to want to get help. I didn't love myself enough. I I really didn't. I didn't think I had it in me to quit. And so just something clicked for me. And I thought, well, I don't love me enough right now, but I love my children enough. You know what I'm saying? And so between my daughters and my wife, I just, I felt that they deserved better. They deserved a lot better than what I had been giving them. And I had talked for so many years about, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. Start living right. And finally, I just, I made that choice. And I really feel like it comes down to that a lot of times. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to deal with the mental health issues anymore um, because life still continues on. But the the alcoholism you have to want to do it bad enough. I know and you hear people say that and it's like, they don't know what you mean. But I, I had to focus my thoughts on the people that I loved and wanted to, you know, pay them back for the beautiful things that they had given me through my life and having to deal with all of my alcoholism and, and just, you know, I was ready to be the dad that I was supposed to be. I wanted to be the husband that I, you know, felt like my wife deserved. And, uh, it, it was my kids. I mean, I have to say it. That's what made that made me make that decision to. Uh, um, sorry, I am still a little nervous. By the way, so not a problem. You're doing great. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't know. I just knew. I knew because it was public that in order, oh, this is what it was. Okay, so I decided that the only thing I hadn't tried was going public and being transparent instead of trying to hide, you know, all of these problems from people to just go ahead and just get it out, be transparent, um, hold yourself accountable. And I, and I thought maybe if I do that, that people out there would help me hold myself accountable. Like I was tired of hiding it. I thought if I talked about it, then maybe it could inspire some other people and, and maybe they'll want to get sober because I'm like, if I can get sober, I can take all this negativity that's been happening to me all these years and turn it into something positive. You know, it doesn't have to be negative. So that's, I guess, one of the first things I tell someone is, sure, there are bad things that you've been through, bad things you've done. Um, you feel horrible about it. But to flip it around and turn it into something good and all you have to do is just be willing to share. Be willing to share some of the madness that you went through for uh, so many years and touch someone. And by talking about that every day, that whole AA thing is not a joke. When you become selfless, then you can start to get sober. Then you can start to, to find happiness. Um, when you're so caught up into yourself and your own thoughts that it's just, oh, woe is me and all these bad things are happening to me. I was just, I was ready to put my foot down and say, I'm going to talk about them. And I just stayed sober. And, you know, I'm in my third year now, which 
for me is an amazing accomplishment because I don't think anybody that knew me thought I was ever going to do it. Also, I think um, hearing about some of these other musicians being found in their hotel rooms, you know, overdosing or committing suicide, I was like, there is a lot more of this going on out in the industry than people really know. I'm like, people are dropping like flies. And I thought, this is, that's how it's going to end for me. I knew it. And so I just decided to put the effort in that I needed to put in in order to stay sober. Had you tried other things? Had you tried outpatient therapy or AA or things like that along the way? Yes, I tried um, AA, outpatient treatment. I did done several 30-day treatments. I did a six-month treatment. Um, and I drank the day I got out after six months. That's craziness. That's madness. That's the madness of alcoholism. Um, the 30 days I, I felt in a way were just to get people off of my back about getting help or to make people feel comfortable like, oh, okay, he's getting help. So maybe we can book a show or maybe we can work on this music with him. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Then what was it about uh, the last treatment center that you went to that finally clicked that made you decide to change? Oh man, it was wild. First of all, um, the, the people, Brian Dumphy, he, he's an amazing guy. Um, he showed up at the Dr. Phil show. There was no pressure. <clears throat> um, they didn't lock me in a room and, and try to keep me. Basically, they put me in an apartment <clears throat> where everybody was in the same complex I had a roommate, but they put me in an apartment to where I'm still independent. Um, because of the eating disorder, they paired certain people with others. And there was a lot of alcoholics and actual men with eating disorders. And so they could put healthy things in your fridge, um, not enough to be able to go and binge or do anything crazy. You know what I'm saying? But they, they let us cook our own meals and we had to cook our meals and eat together. And we had to spend time together afterwards. Um, and you just, you kind of create a bond with some of these guys. That place, I can't really say what it was that was so different other than just the counselors there really seemed like they were genuine and really wanted to help people. You know what I'm saying? And um, that makes a huge difference. Like I felt like a lot of the treatment facilities that I had gone through, they just want to get you in and get you out. They want to make that money and you know what I'm saying and, and get you out there. I just, I never was inspired in the right ways when I went to these other places. Um, and there were still some difficulties, even in oceans, you know, I bumped heads with a few people. Uh, but I guess it was the allowing me to be an adult and show that I can be responsible as opposed to you lock someone away to where they can't leave the premises and they can't do certain things. As soon as they're able to get out, they're going to want to go and use or drink or, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. they, they, they just let out a little rope. They start, start it with you being on campus. And then just every week or so, if you're making progress and doing your homework and those type of things, uh, they would let you take a walk, you know, with some other people or they had bikes. We didn't have to just stay stuck on a little campus. You know, so I guess maybe part of the trust that they showed helped me trust them. Mm. That makes it, you know, because I'm like, wow, you know, their, and their whole thing was, you know, if you're going to drink, you're going to drink. If you're going to, you know, go through these things, if you're going to be 
in your disease with the with the food and the eating, you're going to do it. You've got to make some decisions on your own and you've got to want to do this. And we're just here to help you. It's like they didn't make it sound like we needed them or we were just going to be dead or drunk in a week. They were just support for us while we worked on ourselves. It's kind of kind of a different concept. Right. And when you when you came out with your story, you were on Dr. Phil. I've seen the episode. He kind of read, reads you the riot act, right? Before setting yeah. you, it, was, it was him who set you up with this facility, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, they have different facilities there for different episodes of the show. And I think maybe, and I don't believe in coincidence or luck. I think that was literally something that was just supposed to happen. I don't believe in coincidences. And the fact that Brian Dumphy was there and I met him because Dr. Phil's guy, he was wanting to like send me to treatment right away. Let me put him in the car right now. It's good for TV. Uh, it was my oldest daughter's birthday, the day we were on uh, Dr. Phil. <clears throat> so we even had a little cake back in the dressing room. And there was no way, which it probably sounds a little scary, that I didn't want to get in that car and go. I was like, I want to be able to go home and say goodbye to my family. Send my daughter's birthday with her and then I'll be ready to go. And this guy was like, that sounds great. He's like, Dr. Phil's not going to like it. Uh, but he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you go home. And he let me go home. I spent two days at home packing my bags and, and saying goodbye to my family. And <clears throat> then I, I flew out. So there was yet another opportunity for me to show some strength that I already had. And then they use those examples to build on. I like that. Because I think in most cases, people say, if you're ready, you have to get in the car right now because you're going to change your mind if you have 24 or 48 hours. So, so often people say, nope, you're going, you're going absolutely right this second. But uh, yeah, we know people do better when they have a little more motivation to do it on their own versus feeling like they're forced to be there. That, I guess maybe that was another thing. I wasn't forced by the law. Um, I wasn't threatened by Dr. Phil to, you know, go into treatment. Um, they just made it available. And I think because I went in willingly and because I was just ready to, I just, for some reason, the thought, hold myself accountable, own the things that I have done, and maybe you'll start to get some relief. I was tired of hiding. I was tired of <clears throat> dealing with all the different things. So I just, I just think I was ready. When you were on Dr. Phil, was that the first time you'd shared your story publicly? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And what was what was that like after scary. you did that? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was scary as hell. Um, you know, and they had my wife. They kind of threw her under the bus a little bit. My wife has never enabled me. That the, here's another issue that that I might want to bring up is you know I don't know that I believe in tough love. I think it's appropriate at certain times, but I think that has honestly been the end of some people because they didn't have that one person believing in them. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm not sold on that. And my, my wife was just, <clears throat> she, she gave me opportunity after opportunity to work on myself. And instead of like, get out, you know, can't come back here anymore. Now I wasn't allowed to come to the house with alcohol. You know what I'm saying? After so many of those times, she didn't, you know, I had to give up my wallet. I gave up my car keys. Uh, I had had three DUIs in 2005 in three different counties here in Oklahoma City. 
And if they had been in the same county, I would have gone to prison. Think about that one for a minute. So if, wow. And I was like, God, I hope one doesn't find out about the other. That's the craziness that you're dealing with. But at that point, I said, I don't want to drive anymore. I don't even care if I have a driver's license until, because that was my favorite thing to do was drink and hop in the car, go seeing friends and, you know, just enjoying the scenery on the highway and most dangerous thing you could do. Right. Yeah. And so. So how long, how long did you go to treatment for? Two months. And after getting out of treatment, what kind of care have you gotten since then to help you stay well? Counseling. I do go to AA meetings, but I go when I feel like I need to be around other people that understand me and that I understand, you know, a place where I can be honest and and not have to worry about being judged. Not that my family judges me at all, but so I go to meetings. I I basically pour, poured myself into being a father, you know, staying at home. And here's, here's the other thing that I think contributed and helped was COVID. So I'm staying, I get sober. And then shortly after that hits. And so everybody needs to be at home. And that was a perfect opportunity for me to be a dad and a husband and do things. So I discovered that by staying busy, that helped me stay sober and stay out of my head, um, doing yard work. Yes, I like to get my fingers and hands and knees dirty. I get out in the grass in the yard. Um, We actually finally got a place that had a pool in the backyard. And so I would swim. It didn't matter if it was three o'clock in the morning. I'd sneak out and just hop in the pool and stare at the stars. You know, just things that you know are therapeutic because you felt it. You felt it being therapeutic. Um, walking, um, cooking, like I do all the cooking at home. Um, and I, I love it. I actually love it. Um, um, just staying busy and, and being the guy that I have wanted to be for so many years, but just felt like I was chained up. What's life like for you now compared to how it used to be? Oh man, drastic still. And that's why I kind of started boohooing a little earlier. Like when I say that still things hit me, like just hit me from the sides, I could be talking about something and then a memory pop into my mind that I didn't even know I had. So every day is still an adventure. It's a lot easier because I can talk about these things even in front of my daughters and to my daughters. I listen to them when they speak. and it's, uh, I don't know. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I'm starting to get a little more comfortable, but I still kind of forget where I'm at. And why does this have to happen when I'm like on here with you? And, you know, off camera, I'm just this brilliant. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you know, it's, I know it's there's pressure. I'm on the other side of the camera a lot of times too, answering questions. And I go through the same exact thing. So no worries at all. But I think, you know, our audience is going to gain a lot just from hearing you talk about like, okay, I was in this rough place. I'm sure there were times in life when you felt hopeless. And now here you are to see you just talking about being able to enjoy everyday life, like yard work, um, and that and that you are happy about the life that you have right now. To I, you know, last Christmas, I got a wallet for a Christmas present, which might seem kind of like, oh, yeah, yawn. People give wallets all the time, but I hadn't actually owned a wallet in years. Um, The keys to the car hang on a nail by the garage. She used to have to hide them. 
you know, not because uh, she was trying to show power or control me, which is what I thought back then. It was trying to keep me from hurting someone or myself. But so the little things that you took for granted, like the keys being able to hang um, on the wall, uh, you having a wallet. My wallet actually has a credit card in there and some money. And I get to use it to buy stuff. Like that sounds silly for a guy my age, but I didn't have that for a lot of years. And so I've earned my family's trust. That is above everything else, the most rewarding. That's amazing. How about now that you're you're launching a solo career, do you have any fears about putting yourself back in the public spotlight and, and what that might be like? Yes, I, I, I'm getting over a lot of those fears, um, but I've also had to make some decisions. There are certain places that I just, I won't perform anymore. There are certain groups and artists that I won't perform with anymore, not because they're to blame, but they could be triggers. Um, and I just, I, I have to like draw a line in the sand and it's taken me a while to build back up. But, you know, I feel like I should be careful which ones I choose and not just do them because it's a payday. Because now when I go, I feel like more so than, than just singing the songs that people want to hear me sing, they want to come now to see what I'm going to be drinking when I'm on the stage or what kind of things I'm going to be saying, you know, um, I want to sex you up was our first record. I have a son who's grown. He's 26 and two daughters. My wife told me that God blessed me with daughters because he has a sense of humor <laughs> because, because of the kind of guy I was, I never really considered myself a womanizer or, you know, anything like that. But now I will say I was a young man and young men go through stages um, and curiosity gets the best of them. Uh, it's uh, it's an amazing thing to have daughters because now when I see a woman, I can still, I'm allowed even in front of my, my wife to say she's attracted, she's pretty, but she's also somebody's daughter or, you know, she's a mother, you know what I'm saying? And so that really changes everything immediately for me. Um, it's It's an amazing thing to get sober and just start learning all these things. And I'm 51 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's wise that you know that you don't have to go back to uh, all your old haunts, maybe the places that would trigger you. Because I hear from some people like, no, I should be mentally strong enough, where they have this idea that, uh, that once they're feeling better, that they, they've conquered it and they can, they're invincible. And those are the people that then tend to relapse and struggle the most. The funnest part of doing this solo thing is writing and creating the music because it's actually, I talk about all these things in the music, uh, which I think is very important too. It's just not about the beat anymore and making a great dance song. You want to, you want to talk to people, you want to inspire people with your lyrics. You know what I'm saying? And so another big part and it's treatment for me is to be even transparent in the music, you know? And so my wife keeps tapping something over and I'm just like, what is she <laughs> you know, I think, um, and, and I've heard one of your singles that's coming out and it, it's great. I think uh, you can definitely tell that you're inspired to talk about some of your struggles and, and that you're going to help people with your music. I just got a, mo- uh, a song placed in a movie called Because of You, 
And that was one of my favorite songs that I've held on to for a lot of years. Um, I wrote it for my wife. She inspired that record to be made. And I this, this came out of the blue. Um, someone came and asked me if I wanted to place this song in a movie. It's uh, called For the Love of Money. It'll be coming out around Thanksgiving. Um, so I'm, I'm a little nervous because of my being overweight, but I've started dropping some pounds and I feel like, yeah, I, I just have to, sorry, I keep changing subjects, but I have to look at everything I do publicly as very important. And because I want to set an example, I want to do things right this time because people are watching and younger people are, are needing to learn, you know, how, how they can live life without using or drinking or, you know, sorry, I'm probably rattling on. No, I think that's great to, as a way to hold yourself accountable. If you feel like that helps you to, to stay on track as to know, yeah, there are people watching you now that you've shared your story. People are going to, are going to be looking to you for inspiration. There, there's people that are going to be looking for inspiration, but there's also going to be a lot of people looking to see me fail. And yeah. I would be lying if I didn't say that lit a fire under me too, because I want to prove to everybody that thought I was going to fail uh, that, that I can do this, you know? So um, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun getting sober and working on new projects and going through writing and recording sober. I, I tell my, my kids and my wife all the time, like, sobriety is my new high basically, if that makes any sense. Like it's a whole different trip when you spend that many years under the influence of something to hide and mask yourself. Um, it's, it's a whole new different kind of satisfaction, I guess. I don't know if I want to call it a high, but uh, it's, it's definitely a wonderful thing. So for anyone who's listening, who maybe is struggling, they're in a dark place, and they're feeling hopeless, what would you say to them? I would say, know that you are not alone. I know things seem really tough. And I know you feel like you're the only one in the world that understands and that you're the only one in the world that is going through what you're going through. But you're not. So just know that there are other people that are struggling just like you are. And you can also remind yourself that these thoughts and feelings that you're having are just thoughts and feelings. This doesn't, the sun doesn't rise and set based on what you're thinking today. So I would say to just know that you are loved, know that you're not alone, and um, don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out because it takes a lot more strength to do something like that than it does to go pick up, you know? Thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom with us. And um, we're looking forward to seeing, seeing you uh, succeed and seeing your music career launch now as a solo artist. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down some of the strategies Brian shared and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. Number one. Educate yourself on your options. Brian talked about how several of the treatments he tried weren't a good fit for him. And he also says he wasn't motivated to create change some of the times when he was getting help. Whether you're experiencing a mental health issue like depression or you have an eating disorder or an addiction, 
Do some research on the treatment options available. But don't feel like you need to come up with all the answers yourself. Looking at your treatment options can feel overwhelming. There are different levels of care for people who want help. And you don't need to know which level is best for you or a loved one. A mental health professional can help you determine the best fit. So while one person's needs might be met with a one-hour therapy appointment every week, someone else might need to go to inpatient rehab. Other people may benefit from intensive outpatient services where they get treatment five hours a day and then go home at night. Sometimes people start at the lowest level of care, like outpatient therapy. If that doesn't meet their needs, their therapist might suggest another level of care that might be a better fit. There are also many ways to get treatment in today's world. You can see a therapist face-to-face, or you can talk to an online therapist. Right now, you can even get lots of intensive services from home, which might work well for some people, but not for everyone. So while it's helpful to do some online research about what services are available, you don't need all the answers. You might start by talking to your physician or making an appointment with a therapist to learn more about what options there are. Number two, be willing to try different things. Brian tried several different rehabs before he found the one that worked best for him. He said that currently he sees a therapist and he attends AA, and those are the things that are working for him right now. It's important to keep an open mind about treatment. I've worked with a lot of people over the years who said that they'd never see a therapist, only to find that therapy was really helpful once they tried. And I've worked with other people who refused medication or said they'd never go to an AA meeting but eventually found that those were the things that were most helpful to them. I found this in my own life too. I was skeptical about whether online therapy could really be as effective as face-to-face therapy. But one of my tasks at Very Well Mind was to personally test a lot of the major online therapy services. I found that online therapy is quite effective, and in fact, it offered some advantages over in-person treatment. It doesn't mean it's right for everyone though, but it could be a good option for many people. So keep an open mind. While you're the expert on yourself, you won't know what works and what doesn't until you give something a try. You might find that the things you don't think are going to work might be way better than you expect. And if something isn't working, don't quit trying to get help. Instead, tell someone about your experience. Tell your physician, your therapist, your coach, or whoever you're working with that you aren't feeling or doing better. Because unfortunately, too many people give up trying to get help when one thing doesn't work. Remember, there are lots of different options and many different paths to wellness. And number three, avoid unhealthy places. Brian said he won't perform in certain venues as he launches his solo career. He knows that certain places could trigger his unhealthy habits. That's so important. Our environment makes a huge difference to our mental health. Surround yourself with healthy people and healthy things because it's vital to your psychological well-being. If there are certain people, places, smells, tastes, sights, and sounds that are likely to trigger you emotionally or they're likely to tempt you into unhealthy habits, avoid them. Avoiding things that are bad for you isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you're working smarter, not harder. Because it's easy to waste all of your energy on unnecessary things like fighting temptations around you. If you put yourself in a healthier environment, you can put that same energy to much better use. So those are three of Brian's tips that could help you find the help you actually need. Educate yourself on your options, be open to trying different things, and avoid unhealthy triggers.
Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.